Hello, everybody, and welcome back to DDK Pod, the podcast where three guys who founded an IT company talk about IT industry news and topics that interest us. My name is Julian Day, and with me, as always, are my two co-hosts, Jatinda Candola and Will Dalton. How are you guys? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, good, thanks. Good, good. So, news, first of all. Uh, Will, do you want to start us off this week? Sure. Elon Musk's underground highway is now a reality, and it's going to change the way you commute. So, there you go. By Tina <laughs> Tina, Tina Kerr, I've probably pronounced that wrong. It's from Medium. So Elon Musk, I used to be a fan of, but have become fairly put off by his ever-increasing I'm a god-like behavior and everyone else doesn't matter. But then maybe you have to be a twat to be successful, is he has to take people <laughs> along with, <laughs> with his dreams. <laughs> it's a good start to this episode already. I'm really enjoying it. Okay, we need to hire some twats, I think. <laughs> Anywho, his latest adventure, or at least an adventure that hit the news lately, is this underground highway where, according to the article in the Medium, it's going to change the way you commute. Its purpose is similar to the tube or underground system in that you take people from somewhere that's densely populated, you know, where people used to work, <laughs> to less densely populated areas where people live and now also work through a tunnel, except that he's going to use his Tesla cars instead of trains. Uh, and that's his Tesla cars running off the same tech, worryingly enough. So you don't have to drive. Uh, but fear not, the Tesla tech is only good is, is only going to be good enough because the complexity of the landscape in a guided tunnel is a lot simpler than above ground. So apparently, vehicles will be able to travel at a maximum speed of 150 miles per hour, uh-huh. and there will be less stops as people are all in one car going in the same direction. Haven't quite worked that one out yet. But anyway, Elon Musk Underground Highway is now reality and it's going to change the way you commute by Tino Care on medium.com. It's interesting that one because I, so I actually thought you were going to talk about the story about the, va- the sort of uh, pods in vacuum tubes that go at like a million miles an hour um, thing. Okay. Is it Vir- Virgin who was developing? I think that's that? a Virgin one. Yeah, that's Virgin. Yeah. The, the Hyperloop or whatever it's called. And this strikes me as having exactly the same problem, which is how the hell do you make room and money for all these tunnels? Because <laughs> they're, yeah. they're very expensive things to build. And there's a lot of stuff in the ground that you can't go through in built up areas. Oh, yeah, that's interesting, actually, because the, the article does touch on it, that they've got a new technique in how they bore tunnels, which are much quicker and more efficient. Hence why it maybe becomes a bit more of a reality. But why do they need to be under? I suppose they need to be underground because then otherwise they'd crisscross the roads that dri- cars with drivers in them would be on, I suppose. So is that why he's going underground with it? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But also, as I said, you know, the tech for driverless cars has to take account of a whole load of stuff above ground, whereas below ground, you just guide them. Yeah, I see. Okay. Um, so it's all about the driverless bit, basically, giving you time to sit on your laptop or something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And probably efficiency with those speeds, I guess, 150 miles an hour. Yeah. It's a bit slow for me, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Got nine points on my license now. Flashing past with your spinning rims, yeah. Is that your news? <laughs> <laughs> that news will be when you have to go and bail me out. <laughs> That'll be the news. Unfortunately, Jatinda's not on this episode because he's now in prison for <laughs> driving offences. Well, you work from home, so if you get banned from driving, then at least you'll still be able to do the podcast, I guess. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay, so we'll move on to my new story then. So this is FireEye getting hacked. Why is this interesting? So FireEye are a tech company who specialise in cybersecurity, specifically 
in doing a thing called penetration testing, which for those of you who are not as nerdy as us is basically where you get someone to attack your system or, or probe it with a series of very uh, sophisticated tools to work out how secure it actually is. And they have had, they, they got hacked and had those tools stolen from them. So their crown jewels, the tools that they used to do this penetration testing were stolen by some people who managed to break into their network. Now, Obviously, for their business, that sucks, and I feel very sorry for them. You kind of wonder why it wasn't on an air-gapped server, but I'm sure they had their reasons and all that kind of stuff. But it is really interesting because they've effectively said, in order to have got past our security, this has to have been government-backed spies, effectively, you know, state, state-sponsored state hacking in order to be that sophisticated an attack. So it's ended up with serious egg on face for them, unfortunately. It means they're probably going to have to write an entirely new set of tools, but it also has big implications for anybody who was penetration tested by these companies or this company because obviously now everybody knows exactly what pen tests were run against your system if you were a customer of FireEye. And so therefore, you've now got to proof your system against the techniques that they were probing for because they know everything that they basically know what you haven't scanned and what you have scanned if they've got hold of copies of those tools. So it's not clear who is behind it. Obviously, Russia and China and Iran and people like that are big suspects. But yeah, it's quite a quite a major story in tech this week. I feel sorry for them in a lot of ways, but it's also uh, quite funny. It, yeah, that, I mean, I'm trying very hard not to to sort of slightly smirk, given that their their entire reason for being is preventing this kind of attack. But at the same time, it you know there is a uh, there's a saying, isn't there? There are two types of companies in the world: those who've been hacked and those who don't realise they have been. Mm. So at least they found it, I guess, and they know it's happened and they've reacted in quite a professional way to it, in fairness to them. But yeah, big, big, big story if you're into cybersecurity. Jatinda, do you want to go next with your news story? Yeah, so mine is around about somebody who has passed away but has had made a significant contribution to technology. So Dr. Narinda Singh Kapane, who's known as the father of fiber optics. So he passed away last week, born in India, educated in England and worked in America. He's one of the leading people in this part of the industry. He performed a lot of research on fiber optic communications, on lasers, biomedical instrumentation, solar energy, and he has over 100 patents. Became a member of the U.S. National Investors Council and also part of the British Royal Academy of Engineering, Optical Society of America, American Association for Advancement of Science. So well decorated, and he founded Optics Technology. Wow, that's extraordinary. I've never heard of him. <laughs> I feel very bad and very poorly educated. I'd never heard of him either. I've heard of fiber optics. Yeah, <laughs> I guess we're all in that boat. But yeah, so he he. What was it specifically that he invented then? His research paved the way for high-speed broadband internet and laser surgeries and endoscopy uh, collectively. I love it. A hundred patents. Yeah, it's impressive. We need to we need to get a patent, don't we, of something? We do now. I feel like we've been outdone. That should be our ambition. Let's get one patent. Not a hundred, just one. With you two involved, it should probably be beard styles, right? Something to do with that. <laughs> Could be. Could be anything, really. Let's just patent something. yeah okay cool well we'll have a think about that maybe Uh, while we do (laughs) let's talk about this week's main topic eh? will you're going to take us through humane tech yeah humane tech okay so uh this is really about how technology is influencing our society now and potentially how it needs to change course before we find ourselves in a world full of misinformation multiple truths polarization isolationism 
huge multinationals influencing governments and the erosion of pillars of democracy. Before we find ourselves in a world like that. (laughs) (laughs) Going well. (laughs) Article over. (laughs) So let's start by talking about a chap called Tristan Harris. Any of you guys heard of him? Nope. Only in terms of researching this episode. He used to work for a place called Google, part of Behaviour Science Group as a design ethicist, which sounds quite an interesting role in itself. After leaving, due to reasons that were going to become apparent during the uh, subsequent direction of his career and work that I'll talk about, he co-founded the Time Well Spent movement, um, which has built momentum for screen time feature that you can see on your phone. So so quickly, screen time for iOS-based phones. So uh, there's only one, really. That's the Apple iPhone. And it's called digital well-being for Android-based phones. So, so that's every other type of phone that's, that isn't made by Apple. Uh, I think Windows phones are dead now. And this feature lets you know how much time you or your kids, whoever's on that phone, spends on apps, websites, games, and so on. So you can, in theory, then do something about it. Not sure what you can do about it. Hide your phone from your kids or potentially hide it from yourself, I suppose. This feature and that movement that he started was very successful and resonated with folk because it's now on every phone. And this then led him to also co-found an organization called Human Tech, which is also known as the Center for Humane Technology. And recently, he and his organization and others, who I'll send links to um, as, as part of this podcast, uh, part of a published Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma, which is interesting in its own right. It was this, in fact, that reignited my interest in this subject and the guy and the company. So Tristram, his company, the TED Talks, the websites, the Netflix, the Netflix documentary, what's it all about? It's about how we shouldn't really be worried about the point where technology surpasses human capability which is completely unfounded as there's very, there's been very little advances in, in AGI, AGI, which is, that's the term for artificial general intelligence. So think about how in 2001 Space Odyssey, it's the best example I'd come out with, um, if you guys aren't too young enough to, to, to know about that film. Basically, when computers surpass humans' cognitive abilities to think and plan and process and imagine, you know, the beautiful traits that make us make humans human. But what we should be worried about is the point where technology exceeds human vulnerabilities, which is much more fragile and volatile, as as history teaches us. This, in fact, has always been breached with plenty of focus on machine learning, which is a subset of of AI. This technology is behind developing the optimum way you can get something or someone to do what you want them to do. And that's fine if you're a lab rat in an experiment contributing to something positive. And lab rats and mice have been used great scientific and medical advances throughout career, throughout throughout history. But what happens if you are suddenly that lab rat in an experiment contributing to the benefit of a multinational company's profit margin? And that's contributing, and that's contributing with no remuneration to yourself. Well, maybe the free use of Facebook or YouTube or or other, other applications. But this is what's happening now. There's a shift in how we are being perceived by these companies. It used to be fairly simple. We were a customer who liked buying products. Companies were making and marketing the best products to try and entice us to buy them. However, we are no longer customers in the minds of social media giants. We are the products. 
We are the products being marketed to other companies to entice them to buy us. So we have become the lab rat for their customers. The customers being the people advertising on social media or Google or YouTube. YouTube actually being owned by Google. So how, do, how does this manifest itself? Well, let's take a real-world example. A famous one is Cambridge Analytica. The customer is the Republican Party. The product is a vote for that Republican Party. They got hold of a lot of Facebook profiles to then subsequently target individuals with the appropriate message to stoke the appropriate fear to get the product they wanted. And the product they wanted was a vote for them. And this is without the person being aware or knowing that they are being manipulated by these particular techniques. So when this was uncovered by the New York Times, the Guardian, and the Observer, there was a great fuss about this and created what they term in the industry as a massive shitstorm. However, and with every, and as with everything, there are a number of things in play here. The fact that we are no longer the customer, but the product was in play. The fact that we are willingly giving away our data for the free use of Facebook or the free use of some other social media tool. The fact that a third party was allowed to use it, Cambridge Analytica, or illegally get hold of it, I don't think we'll ever truly know. And finally, the fact that the way the products, i.e. us, were targeted focused purely on the negative. It was focused on, the f- on, on stoking people's fear. Mm. But the key being, without ever triggering the user's awareness that they were being manipulated. The, the whole thing about without triggering the user's awareness that they're being manipulated is quite a, an important point because as I was sort of reading through all this stuff before we started, it struck me that this has a lot of parallels. I know I'm going to get myself a rep as the video games guy because I always talk about examples from the games industry, so apologies, but there are some very strong examples of this kind of stuff happening in games at the moment, particularly around the whole fiasco around loot boxes and, and the manipulative gambling industry behaviors that are being put into video games. And there's been quite a big backlash against that, both from governments and individuals recently, but also just in the way that there's a very exploitative design loop, which is very cleverly hidden in a lot of uh, massively multiplayer online role-playing games, MMORPGs. Um, So things like World of Warcraft and stuff, they have these, these very elegantly designed, very clever mechanics in them, which are designed to do one thing and one thing only, and that is to hook you in and keep you and suck up all of your time so that you will remain subscribed and there's been quite a lot of focus on this in the games industry over the past sort of five maybe ten years world of warcraft's been out for a very long time but there are a lot of other examples where this kind of exploitative design where the user doesn't realize that they're being manipulated but they very much are being manipulated and that algorithm is constantly being tuned to better target the the product the customer in order to keep them enmeshed in this world uh, it, it's a, it, there's, there's some really strong and concrete case studies there of this kind of thing happening. Yeah, yeah. And it's all about, all of this is all about exploiting the vulnerabilities in human, in human psychology. It's focusing in on our, on our addiction, our addictive personalities, and yeah. just creating this kind of manipulation-based environment. But people go into it willingly. That's the funny thing, isn't it? Yeah. So, so with examples like that, people are going into the, playing a game or people are going onto Facebook and, and giving all their data away for free to Facebook. They're doing it willingly for what they see as recreation. But then with that sort of almost innocent perspective, they're then being thoroughly manipulated. 
Hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's um, another angle in terms of there's a lot of uh, um, kind of power that are held by companies such as Facebook now that comes in useful when it comes to American intelligence and the the intelligence services in America uh, to help them to understand threat levels and to help with fighting crime and all that kind of stuff. So although that's not the right way of going about it, I think there's another reason why Facebook have got that kind of uh, autonomy to be able to just continue doing that. And there's less scrutiny than what you'd expect, given how bad this situation is, given that we've seen examples of Cambridge Analytica using Facebook material, influencing the American elections and potentially Brexit as well. I think they they were involved in some of that. Mm-hmm. There seems to be that nobody really cares at the top because there's probably other people, other things plugged into that machine. Well, we've moved into a more extreme version of this recently as well, haven't we? So things like the 300 million a day on the side of the Brexit bus and the, the just mm. fabricated alternative facts that, that the Trump administration has been bandying about for four years. People are are giving, I mean, you can argue the NHS number if you want, but people are giving stuff that is certainly in the case of the Trump administration, definitely outright fabricated. I mean, it's proven that it's outright fabricated to the point where people like Facebook and Google and, and uh, Twitter and whoever else are, are putting warnings on this information to say, by the way, this isn't true. But people mm-hmm. are still manipulated by it. They, there are still people who go, well, that's all a conspiracy. Trump's actually telling the truth. I don't want to get political with this, by the way, so let's not stay on Trump. But it was just a good example of, of where it, it seems to be more extreme at the moment, to me at least. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I agree. I think, I mean, one of the arguments is that as humans, we'll, we'll adapt to this. You know, we have as humans evolved really to be connected to others. That's how, that's how we that's how we evolved from from apes, really. Well, that's why things like social media get such traction, right? Because it's appealing to a very core instinct of human beings, which is just to connect with other people. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. But have we evolved enough to have ten thousand people abuse us or comment on us online with all the relevant, all their relevant hang-ups intertwined in the comments that they provide? Will we adapt when when it's based on on technology that is advancing mm-hmm. exponentially versus humans that advance slower and adapt slower? I mean, computer power has increased. I don't know what over since the 1950s millions even trillions of times since the 1950s versus cars that are maybe a few times faster versus the human brain and our psychology that has evolved probably not at all since the 50s yet we are bombarded we are bombarded with this uh, this new technology and there are shocking stats that are coming on the back of this that the damage damage is being done now you know self-harm and suicide amongst kids amongst younger generation was pretty stable up until about 2010 and suddenly it's beginning to go way up maybe because you know have we evolved enough to take as i say to take account of the sometimes hate that goes along with with social media yeah i mean there used to be regulation didn't there for tv for example about what you could show your kids what you could show kids with during kid, kids program there used to be sort of time thresholds didn't they i think there, I think there still is yeah there's watershed yeah. and all that kind of stuff and you can't you can't use subliminal messaging that's still banned i think now all the attention now is not on the TV. It's on YouTube, isn't it? Yeah. It's on your phone. Where's the regulation there? I don't think there is. Who's governing YouTube or Facebook or Instagram? I think some of this regulation might, it might just be box ticking in terms of there's a statement and that's enough. 
because realistically there's um there's a chain of command when it comes to using these tools to influence people for certain reasons whether that's a business reason or a retail or a political agenda an example i have is um there's a family in india called the ambani family and they're the fourth richest family in the world they they own loads of like companies across uh, india and, and and they've got massive shareholdings in facebook and then facebook owns instagram so it is been exposed that they have managed to get posts removed from instagram that impact their business agenda so where they're trying to take over a company or try to influence certain patterns of cons- consumption against certain products they've managed to influence that through their chain of command through uh, their influence in facebook and instagram to make sure posts are removed and certain habits are exposed yeah, that's incredible. I didn't even know about that. That's amazing. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. But then you you don't know what goes on on these platforms. You don't know how free they really are, I guess, because often the platforms themselves won't take responsibility for a lot of this stuff. You know, they provide the venue, if you will, but it's up to users and consumers to post what they want on them. But it's interesting that that actually isn't true in some cases, although that's the line that your Instagrams and your Facebooks or whatever will take so that if someone posts inflammatory material or terrorist material or something dreadful they can say well it's not our problem because ours is we just own the platform we don't police the content well we we do remove that kind of content if it gets reported but we're not we're not the authors we're not editors we're not publishers but then that it seems that like there's a bit of hypocrisy there if they are actually taking down posts that are not within their business interests that's a really interesting story i didn't know about that so they use their political context to, to influence that because yeah, they're yeah. very close to the Indian government. Indian government makes it an international issue with the American government, and, and that's a, an easy channel to influence. Just subtle manipulation, isn't it? Yeah. How can you get the fact from the millions of different versions of the truth, <laughs> which is what social media gives us? It gives us different angles. You know, the facts are in there somewhere, but they're all different lenses on it. Different, different people's different interpretation of it, different opinion of it, or just damn right not true. Do you know what I mean? But but you but how do you wade through all that information to get to the actual fact? Well, there's also another thing I thought was really interesting as I, I was skimming through some of the notes that you wrote. Will was the thing about it turning life into a competition. There is this constant pressure now to engage with the system, and that's why it's so clever because the the whole thing about competing for likes and shares and retweets and all that jazz, which even a company like we have to do, we, we have to be on Twitter, we have to be putting content out there and, and, and stuff in order to raise our profile. It's, it's just part of business these days, you have to do it. So everyone's on this same treadmill to try and get recognized and, and push their uh, profile out through all these different channels, whether it's personally or in a business capacity. And it, it can, even that can, can nosedive as in the Black Mirror episode where, where everyone, it ta- where it's extrapolated to an extreme, which is a great episode, by the way. You should definitely mm. go and watch that if you haven't. Brilliant. Mm. Bryce Dallas Howard's great in that. But yeah, you know, that almost takes that scenario and just, just throws it forward into the future where it's literally become the sole focus of life. But for some people, it actually is, which is why you start seeing all these pictures of people going, oh yeah, like beach life or whatever. And they're laying on, you can see the reflection in their sunglasses and they're laying on a small patch of sand on their front lawn and all these kind of funny stories that pop up. But it's it's that relentless pressure to engage with these systems that then are not very humane in the way they treat you because they try and manipulate you. Yeah. There's an interesting read on story of us and others. Ted Chang, we've talked about him before, science fiction writer. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the arrival guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
I have a bit of a man crush on him. <laughs> I think this is the third episode you've mentioned him in. So yeah, yeah we're getting no, that impression. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you've got other man crushes as well. <laughs> I have many, rich and buried. <laughs> <laughs> the story des- describes it. I think I've talked about this as well. <laughs> story describes a drug that people took to give them the um, subtle social moves and gestures that makes them more engaging and persuasive to influence or manipulate people. And it's that, it's that kind of thing that is, that's happening now. You know, isn't this the same kind of thing? That's subtle manipulation. It's sort of science fiction becoming <laughs> fact. I mean, I've talked about this before as well, how the gap between science fiction in a lot of areas and what is actually happening now. I mean, my opening gambit about the state of the democratic pillars, the, the, that gap is is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah, for sure. Just drawing this topic to a close then, Will, what was, um, I've forgotten his name now, uh, Tristan, Tristan Harris, sorry. Sorry, Tristan, if you're listening. He'll forgive you. So what was, did, did he have any suggestions about how we can make this better or was he simply highlighting the issue? Well, he's got, so he's, I think part of his mandate is to highlight the issue, which is why he left Google. And he started this humane tech organization, right? So what's their sort of raison d'etre? What are they there to do? Well, they're, they're there to educate people. They're there to highlight what's happening and to educate people. Um, they, they have training, they have seminars, they have events. They're looking to influence people of tech, influencers of tech, I suppose, us, for example, where we then talk about it in things like this to start to make people aware of what is happening. Once you're aware of what's happening, you can do something about it. And I think that's, that's their message. You know, they, they had, they had a few gadgets, not gimmicks, gadgets, apps in terms of making people aware of screen time. They haven't got any more of those particular apps they may do in the future, but they've got this website where actually they can host events and they get people together. Um, They do talks and there's training and it's about, yeah, it's about making us aware so that we can make informed tech choices for our customers as well. Well, I think we'll leave that topic there. But yeah, really, really interesting stuff. I mean, it's it's fascinating when you start getting into how much we are all being affected by stuff like this, probably without realizing it, isn't it? It's quite scary as well, I suppose, in a funny sort of way. But hey, we need to move on to the recommendation section of the show. Um, so Will, do you want to go first with yours this week? Yeah, sure. So my one is a bit sad. So it's called Surviving COVID. It's, it was on Channel 4. It's now on all4.com. So it looks at four patients who lie in comas, were lying in comas in the ICU of South London Hospital, in King's, it was King's Hospital, because they've been struck down by COVID-19. Back in when we had Britain's first surge, back in uh, March, I think it was. It's a very intimate film, follows their stories over six months, but also the impact and stories of their families, their children, and then the subsequent outcome of these four individuals as well. And I'm, I'm not going to tell you the outcome here. It's a hugely moving documentary, but it's really gripping, really demonstrates the immediate and wider impact of the illness and also the long-term consequences, which is what we're all beginning to understand and find out now. Basically, you don't want to get it. So that's Surviving COVID on Channel 4 and all4.com. Cool. Sounds interesting. Jatinda, do you want to go next with yours? Yeah, so slightly more upbeat, but not too much upbeat, is that I've been watching The Crown on Netflix. Ah, so this is a um, a series focusing on the royal family and their recent his- history from when King George passed away and Queen Elizabeth took over all the way through to current. So yeah, it's from about 1947 I think it starts. 
so it's I find it really interesting. I think a lot of the the kind of big stories that you'd expect that have been in the media are quite sensationalized in the in the series. I'm not all the way through it yet, so some of the kind of very kind of juicy stuff with Diana and Charles hasn't really uh, I'm really got up to that point, but I found it really interesting. It got me actually googling actual factual events of, of the time to just to check because some of this stuff is extra well dramatized for entertainment obviously. They they put a caveat on there, so it's not all 100% uh, representation of the truth. But yeah, I found it really interesting. The Netflix truth. <laughs> <laughs> there there is a push at the moment, isn't there? Now the Diana season's just released to put a like a fiction warning at the beginning of it, but Netflix have said yeah, no. They're not going to, no, no. Which is, uh, I guess, probably quite controversial. Cool, cool. Right, so my recommendation is something to help you forget about Will's recommendation. <laughs> uh, so it's wine. Hooray. So 2020 has been a bad year, but because I've discovered this stuff, it's got marginally better. So dark horse wine, dark horse wine. The way they talk about it is they're a Californian-based wine producer founded by a lady called Beth Liston. So female-led company, which is good to see. And pretty much the first bit of blurb that you can read on their website says, our commitment is to combining traditional winemaking techniques with cutting-edge technology. That's at the heart of everything we do. So it, there is a tech angle. <laughs> it's not just me getting drunk, but with a young, very young baby, I, I, I need a glass of wine most nights to, to keep me from murdering myself. Yeah, really, really nice. I've tried about three of them now. Uh, I particularly recommend... Bottles. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> per night. <laughs> no, 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 not, not per night. No. So um, I, I've tried three of the different um, uh, ones that they do. Sauvignon Blanc, a couple of others as well. I can't even remember what ones they were now, but they're, they're brilliant. Um, so I Ooh, recommend... Drunk. I was too drunk. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember because I drank too much of them. I enjoyed them that much. No, it was, um, uh, it was a Chardonnay, a Sauvignon Blanc, and I think a Merlot as well that I tried. I want to get hold of their Malbec, but I can't find it anywhere. Malbec's my favourite wine. But yeah, so both the reds and the whites, really good, all from California. Really dry, which I like a lot. I don't like very sweet wines. And just fantastic flavour. Yeah, really good. It was actually a recommendation from my dad. So hi, dad, if you're listening. Thanks for that. Good recommendation. Like it. Did I miss it? What was the tech angle? The tech angle is just that they say they have a commitment to combining traditional winemaking techniques with cutting edge technology. And they have a whole thing on their website, which you can go and read about what that actually means. Oh, and how they make it. Yeah, yeah. Their techniques for as they, as they make the wine are very heavily productionized with technology, with modern technology. There's a whole thing you can go and check out. I'll stick a link to their website on Twitter if you're actually interested. But it's just a really nice drink. Yeah, very good recommendation from dear old dad. It's not like a little tracker when you drink it. <laughs> I No, the, the, the technology is not in the bottle. Right, so I think, chaps, that's the show. I think we're there. So good stuff. Good chat this week. If you want to get in touch with the show, if you're out there listening, you can do. There are... Uh, occasional letters and tweets and things coming into us. Uh, so we had one from Miss Kafuffle on Twitter a little while ago, another great podcast chaps looking forward to the next one. So thanks very much for that. Uh, nice to see some people writing in. So if you want to tweet us, we are at DDK Limited. That's at DDK Limited. If you want to email the show, you can do. We are ddkpod at ddklimited.com. That's ddkpod at ddklimited.com with limited spelt out. And if you want to get hold of us on LinkedIn, we are Dalton Day Candola. So thanks very much, guys. Been a lot of fun again this week as usual. And I guess we'll catch everybody out there again in two weeks' time. Thanks very much. Cheers, up. Thank you. That music was mine, by the way. Was it Alexa? <laughs> It was Alexa. And I couldn't say, Alexa, turn off the fucking music. <laughs> because I'd say, Alexa, turn off the fucking music.